The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So let's open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And our study this morning is in verses 9 through 12 of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Thessalonian church. And this part of his letter contains practical, down-to-earth advice for Christian living while we wait on the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when I say that this is down-to-earth, I don't speak metaphorically, because this is the earthbound policy for God's people. We're blessed to know that we are the children of God and God has promised that he would take us to heaven. And that's the recurring theme that we find throughout this letter. Every chapter of this epistle talks about the Lord's return and following what we read here today uh, is another passage, one of the most well-known passages about his return. But we're not to that point just yet. You and I live in the interlude between our initial salvation, that is the day that we came to faith in Christ, and the day that we see Christ, and that will be the day of our final salvation. Most people don't die immediately after becoming Christians. You just don't die and go to see the Lord. No, you live, and as you live, God has a purpose for your life. God doesn't intend that we would die upon our reception of Christ as our Savior because then that would defeat his purpose of evangelizing the world and and bringing uh, the elect, those who he determines to save, to him. God uses means to save people. The gospel must be preached. And our participation in the salvation of others through the preaching of gospel, through your personal witness, that is the responsibility of every Christian. We must have men and women, boys and girls, who are willing to tell others about Christ as we wait for him to return. God also uses the testimony of our lives as a means. Uh, You might not ever say anything to a person in a one-on-one confrontation, but the attitude of your heart The attitude of your heart is very clearly seen in your actions. Every day you preach a sermon with your life. Uh, William Barclay wrote, A tree is known by its fruits, and religion is known by the kind of men it produces. The only way to demonstrate that Christianity is the best of all faiths is to show that it produces the best of all men. When we Christians show that our Christianity makes us better workmen, truer friends, kinder men and women, then we are really preaching. The outside world may never come into church to hear a sermon, but it sees us every day outside church, and it is our lives which must be a sermon to win men for Christ. Now, I hope that you pay close attention to that, because those of you who may be timid with confrontational evangelism, and many are. Though you might be timid with that, yet you are still every much so an evangelist because you speak every day with your life. Now, if I I could condense the message of the four verses that we'll study today, this would be it, that we must show that our Christianity makes us better people, that we are, in fact, the best workers, we are the truest friends, We are the kindest and gentlest of all people. 
Our lives are a sermon for Jesus Christ. That is pretty much the theme of these verses. Now this is what Paul wrote, uh, his words of advice in this letter. Verses 9 through 12 is what we're looking at today. Where Paul says, But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more, and that ye study to be quiet, and to do your own business, and to work with your own hands, as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without and that ye may have lack of nothing. Christianity in the first century was radically different from the paganism of Rome. The virtues that are embraced by the Christian faith were unknown to them. I mean, there was just a a dramatic contrast to that hedonistic society. And in the exposition of the first verses of of this chapter that we looked at uh, a few weeks ago, uh, we saw how that sexual impurity, the ignorance of chastity, license to take sexual advantage of other people, that was pretty much the norm for life in the Roman Empire. To be a sexual aggressor was even considered to be a virtue. This, this was the way of life for the pagans of Rome. They were a cruel, heartless people. They made no provision for the welfare of others. Roman men could even kill their own children if they desired. Paganism was absent sensitivity, and yet it was a very sensual society. But then on the other hand, Christianity was marked by restraint, by the kindness of giving oneself for the good, uh, the good of the poor, the good of the sick, of the age. It was love for all classes of people from the very lowest of society up to the kings that ruled empires. Christianity is the religion of brotherly kindness and close-knit fellowship between its members. Now the church uh, that Paul preached to when he started preaching and when the Lord Jesus was here, it was a new organism. It was an organism with Christ as its head and with each member functioning as a body, functioning together as a body. And that contrast to see how Christians lived was something that intrigued pagans in that society. And eventually these kinds of things, uh, this witness that Christians had and this lifestyle that they lived was the thing that won the empire and, and uh, made Christianity spread across its vast expanse. Now in verse number 9, the underlying cause of this is stated that the virtue that made Christianity supremely different from all the rest was love. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Love, that is the driving force of our faith. We're not Christians if we're not consumed with and driven by love. Well, this letter emphasizes three important facets of the Christian life. By now you know them. Uh, Paul stated them in the opening verses of his letter. In the third verse of chapter 1, he, it's the work of faith, the labor of love, and patience of hope. And so we see those three things, the faith, love, and hope, that are the repetitious themes of this epistle. Faith is the subject in the first part of this fourth chapter. Love is the subject that we talk about today. The next week in the end of the chapter, it's the hope of Christ's return. Now, you remember that it was Paul's desire 
to return to Thessalonica to perfect their faith. They had an imperfect faith. And the imperfection was mostly that they had not let their faith permeate every area of their lives. So they lived in holiness and purity as Christians ought to live. Some of the people in the church were still practicing the immorality of the culture. And so that prompted Paul to reinforce earlier teachings. In this letter, he writes about what he told them before when he was with them. And he told them that their faith must be different from the culture. And I would remind you that the same is true for us today, that we are to be different from the culture in which we live. And there ought not to be anyone who observes our lives, who doesn't understand who we are and what we believe and who we serve. Our lives need to be very evident of that fact, of what we believe and who we serve. But of course, we live in a Roman-esque society that sanctions deviant sexual lifestyles. Abortion and euthanasia look very much like the cruelty of Rome. Pedophilia and child pornography, those are Roman-type vices. But leaving those behind, because we've talked about those things before, in today's text we come to the second parallel of their society, the Roman society to ours, what was happening to the church there. And it is the spiritual degeneration of Christian love. It's a waning heart of love that degenerates into selfishness, into a self-love. And this is what we see happening today in things like the prosperity gospel. It is a false gospel of self-satisfaction, of self-promotion. It is a gospel that dilutes self-sacrifice that was taught by Christ. Well, we don't always have the luxury of easy exposition when we read Paul's letters. Many of the doctrines that Paul gives are very, very difficult for us to understand. I mean, even the Apostle Peter, remember, said, Paul is a hard fellow to understand. He... uh, People had trouble climbing through the theological principles that that Paul expresses in his letters. But when Paul gets very practical like he does here, this is not hard. This is not hard for us. The advice is not difficult. In fact, we find that Paul gives us here four sermon points that very easily can be picked out and followed. How do we occupy as we wait on Christ to return? Well, I hesitate to keep calling this Paul's advice because I think he wanted to do more than to advise. What he gives us here is the immutable counsel of God's word, what you should do as you wait on Christ to return. We're going to look at Paul's sermon points here. How should you occupy your time as you wait for Christ? Well, first he points out that all of us, as believers in Jesus Christ, we should act on our affections. Verse 9, he says, But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Now, the first theme of this letter is faith. The second is love. We are to have a living faith that rules our lives. And then we are to have an active love that characterizes our lives. Faith is something that needs to be strengthened. It, It needs to grow. It must advance. Faith needs to be taught. And you remember we discussed how faith is increased through the study of God's Word. As we gain more knowledge, faith will increase. That's why God gave us pastors and teachers in the, in the church to teach us more of God's Word so our faith will increase. We're taught to trust God more and more. 
Now, although our initial faith in God is something that is God-given, it's evident that Paul's theme here is not about God-given faith in initial, that initial faith when we come to Christ in salvation, but here Paul is speaking about the living faith. What happens to your faith after you become a believer in Jesus Christ? And your faith is a faith that always needs fine-tuning. It's a faith that needs more experience. And a faith that will always lack unless there's someone like the Apostle Paul to teach us how we can have a greater faith. But we notice something different in what he says about love. He makes a very interesting comment. He said, I don't need to write to you about brotherly love. I don't need to teach you this because God already taught you. Now, obviously, with with faith, uh, there is more. Just like faith, there is more that we can learn about love. But the power for Christians to love is not something that humans can teach. I can't stand here and teach you how to love. And I can't put love into you. I can't convince you to love people. And neither do I need to. Because God's already done that. He's already put it into your heart. You see, when you became a believer, immediately injected into your heart was an ability to love in ways that only God can love. And I'm not talking about the way that the world loves, because what they do is confuse love and lust, and that's what Paul dealt with in the first part of this chapter. He turns our attention away from that. He, he, he gets us away from the perversion of love in the first part of the chapter, and now he talks to us about the real brotherly love that must exist between believers in Jesus Christ. Now, the pagan Thessalonians, the weak Christians also that he writes to, were very mixed up about love and lust. Christians knew better. They can, they can be taught by God. They are taught by God. But the Thessalonians, the Romans, those who, who didn't believe in Jesus, those who have unregenerated hearts, they can't be taught. You can't be taught this unless you have God in your heart because it's God that, that defines His love through the Scriptures and through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. This love is that kindness, it's the, the, car, the care, the, the concern that we have for others that makes Christians different people. And this is the love that attracted a pagan society because it was so much different from theirs. They'd not seen it before and neither did they understand it because they couldn't understand it. They can't until the gospel penetrated their hard hearts. Well, Paul differentiated this love. He wasn't speaking of the first great commandment. That is the commandment that we love God. Every Christian will and must love God. To love God, that's the first of the two great commandments. Rather, in this passage, he speaks of the second great commandment. He speaks of brotherly love. This is a person-to-person love that flows out of that love that we have to God. I don't need to teach it to you. I can remind you of it. This is what Paul did. I can ask, and he did, to ask for it to increase. But he need not teach it as if it's something that can be placed into the heart. Again, it doesn't need to be placed in the heart because if you are a believer, God already put it there. When you became a Christian, you received this knowledge automatically. It becomes inherent in you. And you can see here in verse number 8 that Paul tells us how it came to you. He said the Holy Spirit is given to us. In Romans 5 verse 5, the scripture says the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. How does it say that's done? He says by the Holy Spirit. 
So it's impossible to be a Christian and not love people because the Holy Spirit is in your heart. And so if you find someone who says, well, I'm a Christian, but they don't love people, their profession is false. If you don't care for the people in your church, if you don't love people in your church, your profession is false. Now, if you'll turn to 1 John chapter 3 for a moment, we can see how sure this characteristic is to the Christian faith. You must love your brother if you truly belong to Christ. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. We know that we have passed from death to life. We know that we've moved from the deadness of our spirits to life in Christ when there's evidence that we love our brothers. And if that evidence is not there, there is spiritual death. Well, John goes on to say that this love will be demonstrated by helping your brother when he's in need. In verse 17, he says, If you lack compassion for your brother, how can you say that the love of God is in you? And if the love of God is not in you, his implication is you can't be a Christian. Now, if you just look over another page or two to the fourth chapter, verses 7 and 8, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. Now, if you'll keep your finger in First John, we're going to return here in just a moment. But interestingly, in our text, back in First Thessalonians, Paul said, brotherly love. Now, in preaching and in newer hymns today, it's popular to speak of love using the Greek term agape. Most of you have heard it, you know that word. It's a fine word, but because you know that word doesn't mean that you know more than other Christians about love. Singing about agape love using Greek when you sing doesn't make you a smarter or a better Christian. In fact, Paul doesn't even use that term here. Here he says brotherly love, which is a word that comes from the Greek word Philadelphia. Now, you don't hear too many Christians singing Philadelphia in their hymns today. Now, you, you might note this, that Paul says you can forget about agape if you don't have Philadelphia. If you don't love your brother, how can you love God? How can you have this agape that dwells in you? Now, we return to 1 John. In the fourth chapter, we learn how that God teaches us to love. He does teach us. You are taught of God. But how does he do that? Well, you can mark this down. That the way that God teaches us to love is by example. 1 John 4, verse number 9. And this was manifested, the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. There's our example. God gave us an example. If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. So Paul says, follow that example. And if you don't have that example, then you're and follow that example, you're not a Christian. Christianity makes you different from what you were before. Christianity is what gave the world what it didn't have. Charities, 
benevolent works, hospitals, nursing homes, orphanages, and the like. Now, the world has picked up on that, and now they do it too. But it was the love of God through Christianity that was the beginning of all of those. Now, our text says, you are taught by God. So the problem isn't that the Thessalonians didn't love. That's impossible, because they're believers. But what Paul does is to encourage that love in their hearts, that the love that they have in the heart might be more apparent in their actions. Go out there and do something with that love that's in your heart. And so he wanted them to keep increasing their love. That is, he wants them to keep acting out on those affections. And we see they showed signs of it. Verse 10 of our text says their brothers throughout Macedonia had experienced their love. And indeed, ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that you increase more and more. Or he says, act on your affections more and more. Start doing more. Paul commended them for their love. And they must have listened. And they increased their love. Because later when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he used these same churches in Macedonia as an example. 2 Corinthians 8 Verses 1 to 3, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. How that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, and yea, beyond their power, they were willing of themselves. Now do you see, they lived out this verse in 1 John, But whoso hath this world's good goods and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him how dwells the love of God in him brothers were in need and the Thessalonians were Christians the love of God was in their hearts and that love had increased to the point that they were able to give beyond their ability to give so as Paul writes this he knows they're Christians he knows there is a basis from which to work, he can tell them this, their love can increase, and their love would become one of their best efforts at evangelism. And I'll say the same to you. How will our church be known in Ronard Park? Will it be because we have the signs that we put out front, the banners that we put up along the street? Is that how our church, is that the way people are going to know us? Will it be because of the sermons that are preached in this pulpit? I doubt that very seriously. The neighborhood doesn't come in to any large extent to hear what's being said here. But they can know something about our church by the way that we live in this community. How do we live outside of this building? That's the way that the people will know. This people of, of this community will know about Berean Baptist Church. Act on your affections. That's what Paul says the church is to do. Increase, abound in love, superlative, overabounding in love. Now, the next three occupations for Christians as we wait for the Lord to return are given to us in verse number 11. And that ye study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Now, Paul's second sermon point is that we are to live a peaceful life. And that ye study to be quiet. Study here is a word that means to aspire. It means to be ambitious towards a quiet life, a peaceful life. Now one way that you live a peaceful life is not to be an agitator. 
Don't be somebody who stirs up trouble. Now, we, we are blessed to live in a country where we have been given the right to protest. We can march. We can hold up signs. In fact, if you want, you can go to a town meeting and you can protest all you want in a town meeting. You can go to the halls of Congress of our country and you can go to a congressional hearing where they're interrogating a Supreme Court nominee and you can just say all that you want practically and you can stir up a ruckus all you want because that's your right to do it. And many people do it. You can, but that's not how Christians should act. We're not going to win the world by stirring up trouble. Now, I dare say that although it is an American right to protest, there aren't many of us who watch those kinds of things on television and listen to all the trouble that's stirred up by people that are making all the commotion and automatically in our minds think, well, those people must be Christians because they're protesting. No, we think those people can't be Christians because Christians don't act like that. Now, Rome was a corrupt government. It was a cruel government. They persecuted Christians. But Paul never advocated that Christians should overthrow Rome. He said, as much as you can, live peaceably with them. And in 1 Timothy, he said, pray for your leaders. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Be quiet. That's what Paul says. Stay out of the fray. Preach the gospel and let God attend to your needs. Let God, let God protect you as he sees fit. We're not going to change the world by influencing legislation. So the church needs to spend its time preaching the gospel, not preaching politics. Now, if we just took what the Word of God said and believed it, that God ordained government, even bad governments are ordained by God. God sets up leaders. He deposes leaders. He works all things after the counsel of His will. He does as He pleases in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Well, sure, we have political parties that oppose every moral law that's given by God, but those things don't move us. We're not worried about that. We're not worried that God's kingdom will suffer a setback because of political parties. God's will is never upset. Now, live a peaceable life. That, that's a general plea for all. We all should live a peaceable life. But could there be something more specific in this text? I believe there is. This letter was written partially because of confusion about the Lord's return. Now, Paul wrote that Christians should be ready. He taught them, be ready. Because the Lord may return at any time. He said be ready. But he never set a date. He didn't say be ready because it's going to happen in about three weeks. You need to be ready because surely it's not going to be longer than three months. And when the Thessalonians heard this, they heard be ready. And they misunderstood. And they thought, well, he means pack up. Get your things ready to go. But that's not what Paul meant. Now if I told you... Jesus will be here next week, what would you do? Well, probably many of you would say, well, what we better do then is we better go tell everybody. We better get excited about that. We better go knock on every door. We better stand on street corners with signs that say the end is near. And apparently, there were some of the Thessalonians who did. Some of them got very frantic about the information. They started bouncing off the walls trying to get the world ready. And like date setters today, they sold all their stuff. Some did. Some gave their stuff away. Some quit their jobs. 
Some of the slaves quit serving their masters. And while they waited for it to happen, and it didn't happen, they became lazy and idle. And that's the next problem we're going to talk about in just a minute. So here they are, they're bouncing around town, they're all over town in a frenzy, stirring up a lot of dust because of Christ's return. But interestingly, Paul says, if you want to prepare for the Lord's return, settle down, live a peaceful life, be a witness to people, but don't be a nuisance. And so while we wait, we still have to live in the world. There's business for us to attend to. You get saved and you still need to attend to your daily life. Christ will come, that's for sure, but you're not going to miss him if you're his child. You can't do a single thing that will hasten his coming or a single thing that will delay it. Oh, you can pray for it and you can ask for it. Jesus said, pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Oh yes, he said pray for it, but you're not going to change the date. Nothing that you do will change the date. So what's the message that he gives us? Simmer down. Cool your jets. Live and love each other. Witness and live peaceably. You don't need to go out and protest to change the world. God's going to take care of that. Vengeance is His. And those that He doesn't change, He will destroy. That's pretty much the message. So live within the boundaries of the Scriptures. Live within what you know to do. Now in chapter 5, Paul identified their problem. In verse 14, he said they were unruly. The word simply means they weren't peaceful. So he tells us, act on your affections, love people, live a peaceable life. Now, thirdly, how do you occupy as you wait for Christ to return? Well, thirdly, attend to your own affairs. Verse number 11, do your own business. Now, that's a nicer way of saying, mind your own business. Now, the misunderstanding of the Lord's return started to filter into their daily living. Some gave up their jobs. I mean, what's the point of working if it's all going to end anyway? So they stopped working, and they were idle, and they had too much time on their hands. So what'd they do? Nothing. Except this. Some did what Paul said you shouldn't do. They kept busy without their own business, and the only way to keep busy when you don't have business is to keep busy in other people's business. So that's what they did. So they're overhearing things and they're, and they're butting into other people's business. Now if you, you'll look in the second letter to Thessalonians, chapter 3. In the second letter, chapter 3, verse 11. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such... We command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. That's a very plain command. Stay out of other people's business. Now it's not the same as what he says in Philippians chapter 2. Because there Paul says, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now there he's talking about a sincere concern for the spiritual welfare of your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what Christians do. But a busybody is a nosy person who has this constant urge to know what everybody's doing so they can spread it everywhere. He's always trying to correct somebody, always trying to give unwanted advice, and always trying to deal with somebody's problem. But your duty as a Christian is to do your own business. And your first business is to get your own house in order. Before you go looking at somebody else and pulling the log uh, try to pull a speck of sawdust out of somebody else's eye, pull that log out of your own. 
Get your own house ready before you start talking about other people's problems. Now here's another very interesting verse in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter 4 verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. Would you look at the sins he mentions? A murderer, a thief, an evildoer. That's, that's a word that means a criminal. How does a busybody get in that list? Why, why there? Murderers? Busybodies in a list with murderers and criminals? We don't put those things on the same level, do we? Men and women, the gossips that got something to tell all the time. We don't put them in this list, do we? Oh, that's not serious stuff. Well, according to the Lord, it's very serious. Put right up there with murderers and thieves and criminals. Any of you remember the old telephone system with, with uh, party lines? You know, if you lived in the country, especially in the country, nobody had a private telephone line. So the calls come into the operator and she plugs it in and rings your phone. Now the only problem is that everybody on the party line gets the ring too. You have a special ring. And she rings you and you pick the phone up because you know it's for you. So when that phone rings, everybody hears the ring. And whether it's their ring, they pick it up anyway. Oh, do people do that? Or did they do that? Did they listen to your conversation? Sure they did. Yes, they listen to them. And if your Aunt Sally died before she's cold in the ground, you can pick out the flowers. Everybody already knows it in the county. Why do people need to know that stuff? I've got to have something to tell. Busy bodies need something to tell. And so they keep up with everybody's business. Now, a Christian has enough business keeping himself straight without being the conscience of everyone else. So there we have three pieces of good advice. Act on your affections. Live a peaceable life. Mind your own business. Stay in your own affairs. Now the fourth one really needs attention in the lives of people today. Labor for your living. Work with your own hands. Paul said, look dude, get a job. Go get a job. Stop mooching off everybody. Just get a job. You know, I hear there are many employers that can't find enough people to work. I was at the grocery the other day and the lines at the checkout, they were backed out down the aisles. Finally, I got up to the checker and uh, she said to me, just can't get anybody to work. Nobody can bag the groceries. So I pay three times too much for the food and I stand there and bag my own groceries. Meanwhile, I step outside the door of the store and there's somebody with a cardboard so sign that says, need food. And I said, look, they need help. Go in and get a job. Go in there and get a job. Walk ten feet and get a job. Support yourself. Well, they're mixed up. Uh, there was a mixed up understanding of the Lord's return. And so that caused some to quit their jobs. They thought they had set, been set free from work. Thank God I'm free. I'm free at last. And, you know, I, I don't know where to start on this. I don't know where to start. We're a culture of freeloaders. This, is, this illustration is dated, but it's stuck in my mind. I listened to an interview on TV after Hurricane Katrina. And they interviewed a fellow who was just hopping mad because the federal government was late with his check. And what was he doing? Well, he was sitting in the house. And I think they picked his house because all around his house there was a cleanup going on. There were volunteers out there picking up all the trash and trying to get things in order. And this fellow is sitting in the house and he's mad because he's waiting for his check. And he's angry and he says, I deserve my check. 
Now, he probably hadn't paid 15 cents into the system, but he deserved a check. Now, you'll pardon me, but that gets under my skin. If you get a check, then you must have some time on your hands. So go help somebody. If you get a check and you're not disabled, then you ought to be doing some community service for it. All able-bodied recipients, check recipients, ought to be out cleaning up roads and picking up trash and doing that kind of stuff. And you, you say, folks, uh, I mean, you ask these folks, you, you say, how do you support yourself? And that's an interesting question. How do you support yourself? And they say, I get a check. Okay, well, you don't support yourself. I support you and your five illegitimate kids. You know? Does that sound like something a Christian should say? Should a pastor stand in a pulpit and talk like that? That's not compassionate conservatism. Well, ask Paul about it. Paul didn't advocate a blue party welfare state. No, Christianity is described by Christ. Go to work, he says. Go work with your hands. Labor for a living. Nobody owes you a living. So what is a Christian? Paul will tell you by personal example in chapter 2, verse 9. For ye remember, brethren... Our labor and travail for laboring night and day because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. Paul said we work so we wouldn't need to take anything from you. And then if you look in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 10. He says for even when we were with you this we commanded you that if any would not work neither should he eat. Is that plain enough? He says, all of you without jobs, go back and get your work. Go back to your jobs. Go work. If you don't work, then don't come looking for a handout. If you can't work, that's a different story. If you're poor, you don't have enough, we'll help you, but not if you're not willing to work. I've told this story many times before. When we had our school, our building here was open every day. And I would, I would sit in the office and people would wander in off the street and I had a fellow who came in, and I would never discuss giving money to anybody until I had first talked with him about the gospel of Christ and the need to be saved. So I had a fellow who came in, and he was just honest enough to tell me what he wanted. And he said, spare me the Jesus speech, just give me the money. Now, in all, in all the times, with all the people that came in, dozens of times, I could count on half the fingers of one hand, how many that came in and said, do you have some work that I can do so I can get some money to buy some food? Oh, I've had plenty that want their rent paid. And I've had plenty who want their car payments made. And there are those who want food money while at the same time they reek of cigarettes. You know, a person who smokes a pack of cigarettes a day spends $2,500 a year on cigarettes. The Bible says, if you don't work, you can't smoke, or something like that. It does say that. So I believe there, there ought to be a check on the welfare check. If you're able-bodied and you're without a job, come with proof of community service and we'll help you. If you don't work, you don't eat. Well, here's some interesting information for you. You know, I, I'm, I'm pushing time and I'm in trouble, so there's no sense bailing out now. We might as well go all the way. There was a reason in the Greco-Roman culture that Paul needed to address stuff like this. See if this sounds familiar to you. One of the highest Greek ambitions or aspirations, as we see in verse number 11, one of the highest aspirations was to try and live without working. Greek philosophers were notorious for getting people to support them because of their nuggets of wisdom. 
So you might say they, they had the equivalent of an ancient research grant. So you, you, know, you know what that is. That, that's, let's see if we can get the government to pay us to figure out why flies land on cow piles. And let's get a few million dollars to investigate why bats hang upside down. Let's get somebody that will pay us for worthless information. Then we're going to write a paper about it, and we'll get the money, and then the government will file it away someplace where nobody will ever see it. And you'll love this. Many of the Greeks and Romans wanted political offices so they wouldn't have to work. And you wonder, what is my congressman doing when he doesn't show up for a vote? You know, it used to be that officials, public officials, lost money when, when they went and held office. George Washington almost lost his entire estate while he served, but now they go in rich and they get richer. It's endemic in our society. This is the way it is. How can we figure out how to live without working? Work is bad, they say. I'd rather be fishing than working. That's what they say. Work is to be avoided. People cry today if they work 50 hours. Now, I remember when I was young, 50 hours just got my dad started. But people groan. We work too much. Work, work, work. Work isn't bad. Did you know that? Work was not a part of the curse. God told Adam to work before he sinned. He said, tend the garden, subdue the earth. And so in a perfect world, you might ask, why is there work? Well, because it's better that people aren't lazy bums, that's why. Now, I'm not picking on anyone, but can you show me a single word of information in the Bible that speaks of retirement? There is one. Did you know that? If you were a Levitical priest... You had to stop and get out of the priesthood at 55. That's Numbers 8, 24, and 25. But once you were out, you had to spend the rest of your days teaching and advising younger priests. Did you know retirement's not a biblical concept? That's a fairly recent invention. Three generations ago, nobody ever heard of retirement. So what do we say about retirement? Are we against retirement? Well, no, we're not against retirement. But I can say this that Christians ought not to use retirement to avoid service in the church. But I'm afraid there are many Christians who think retirement means it's okay to do everything else. What should you do? Well, we have some folks in the church that are good examples with this. They retired, but now they're very busy. They're very active in checking up on people in the church. They got, they've got jobs that they do in the church. They, they've got time to visit now. They've got time to pray. They've got... Time and they take time that they couldn't take when they had to work every day. Somebody said the worst retiree is a religious retiree. They're the ones who said all their lives, you know, I can't work for Jesus now. I can't do it now because I've got to work. But as soon as I retire, I'll start working for Jesus. They don't. They quit their job, they retire, and they don't serve God. Do you think the church could use some retirees with time on their hands? When did... God's time quit being God's time. When did, when did our lives become ours to do with as we please? Are you going to, can you find that for me in the Word of God? That your life is yours to do as you please? No, your life is to be set in the service of God. It doesn't matter how old you are. Soon as you become a Christian, your life is to be sent in the, spent in the service of God. You don't quit God's service. When you retire, you get more into God's service because you got more time. Back to our thought, 
What should we require before we hand out food or church money or whatever? If you don't work, you don't eat. If you're able, you should work. The Evan Hebert wrote, It is a sign of grace to be charitable, but though one would not speak an unkind word of those in need, it is not a sign of grace to require charity. You know, there's some who think that Jesus taught everybody ought to take a vow of poverty. Jesus taught nothing like that. A vow of poverty is counterproductive. Because a vow of poverty means somebody's going to need to support you and you can't support the church any longer. You can't give if you don't have anything. So go to work. Don't take a vow of poverty. Work to support the church. Work to support God's work. It's not a sign of grace to require charity. So what's our conclusion? Well, Paul says this, verse 12, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without and that ye may have lack of nothing. Walk honestly. Love people, live peaceably with them, mind your own business, work for a living. And if you do, he says, you won't lack anything you need. God will take care of that industrious person. So the lesson that we learn from this part of the scriptures is that our best evangelism is the credibility of our lives. We won't win anybody with topsy-turvy, frank, uh, frantic, messed up, meddlesome, lazy lives. The world's already like that. So what good is it for a Christian to be like that? So what do you need? You need a good reputation. You need a religion that makes good people, people that are better workers, those that are truer friends, those that are kinder, gentler, and compassionate. Christianity attracts because it's a different lifestyle. It's honest. There's faith. There's love. There's community. There's care and concern for others. And then there's also this. There is hope. Faith, love, and hope. And the next section that we begin next week is about hope. Jesus is coming back. And what are you going to do until he comes? You occupy well. You love one another. You live peaceably. You mind your own business. And work, work, work. That's how you occupy until Christ returns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now asking you, Lord, to help us to live our lives in a way that we show we are better people. We're not better because of anything that we've done. We're not better because our works are so much greater than anyone else's. No, we are better because of the power of Christ in us. We are better because the Holy Spirit is in us. And if He's there, it ought to show on the outside in everything that we do every day. Lord, very practical advice for Christian living. Help us to take that advice. And to live, as Paul says, we ought to live every day. We live waiting for Christ to return. But as we wait, we must be very, very busy about your business. We pray, Lord, you convict our hearts with this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.